Welcome to The Sustainable Life. This is Josh Spodek. I'm here with Kate McKenzie, Executive Director of the Mayor's Office of Food Policy. Glad to have you here. How are you? I'm great. It's nice to be here with you. Thank you for hosting down. I'm here downtown across from City Hall in your offices. And uh, the the first thing I want to talk about, Eric Adams has been on this podcast twice. Uh, I think that's how he became mayor. I, I think those are the <laughs> votes that did it. Where am I going to go? What's next? <laughs> the, yeah. Um, all right. Now, since you said this, I got to say, uh, I had... I was invited to speak at um, West Point on leadership, mm-hmm. and the guy who brought me there was a retired four-star general. I stayed in the hotel on their campus, wow. and I stayed in the room above his. He was in the room named after him. Oh, goodness. And, or the suite, rather. And the book, um, in, in my room, there was a book, and on the book, it was like famous generals who were famous like military people who graduated West Point, and he was on the cover. Wow. So that's uh, General Lloyd Austin. At the time, he was retired without a job. Now he's the United States Secretary of Defense. So I can't say I got him that job also, <laughs> but let's see where things go. Let's keep in touch. Excellent. But I want to, so Eric and I, I think it's safe to say we bonded over food. I mean, uh, people should go listen to his episode, but he was losing fingertip sensation and vision, and he switched to whole foods plant-based diet. Uh and I, for separate reasons, went in the same direction. It was more for sustainability, but we came to very similar places. And I, I love the food that I eat now. I used to love, I mean, I grew up in Philadelphia. I loved cheesesteaks. Mm-hmm. And I just always had ice cream in the freezer, always had potato chips. Uh, actually, it was Snyder's of Hanover pretzel bits. And I would always buy the next one as soon as I finished the first one. Filled with shame, filled with feeling helpless that I couldn't stop myself. And, uh, and so talking to Eric was great. I was like, this is, he wasn't faking it at all. So many people in this world are. And so you, as I understand, uh, Mayor de Blasio hired you and it would be interesting to hear about him, but I'm interested in hearing about the difference. Like what, what it's like working with Eric. Well, first of all, I will say that I'm also from Pennsylvania. And I just came back from a long weekend and um, I'm smiling because pretzels and Pennsylvania yes. are <laughs> are almost synonymous for me. But um, you're right. So I was hired um, in this is actually I've been um, on the job uh, for just over three years in um, I came in at the end of September 2019 um, after a long history and many experiences in really the emergency food space and trying to insert health and then sustainability into um, a, a long-standing machine of emergency food in um, across the country. And I saw uh, what Mayor de Blasio was trying to do, which is creating really a platform of food and dabbling in food and climate. And so I thought like, that's really exciting. And that's stretching myself a bit. And I really wanted to be able to do that. Um, and then it's 2022 and we get, uh, 2020 and we get sidelined by the pandemic. Yeah. And so it, emergency was, food. Like, yeah. it was a return to emergency food. Um, and everything, I genuinely believe everything that happens happens for a reason. And so I was able to leverage that, um, 
extraordinary skill set and relationships and ability to operationalize a extraordinary emergency food distribution plan um, that lasted for two years. Um, and, you know, when, of course, the uh, mayoral campaign was, uh, well, you know, we had the election um, and certainly Eric won. I'll be honest, I was nervous. I was nervous because of how um, how well-formed his desires and vision was around food. And I knew that at the time I was in office of me and two people on loan. And I was really concerned about how I'd be able to execute on that vision. Um, but what I also know about people who are movers and shakers in food policy is that they really want to do what Eric says, which is get stuff done. Mm -hmm. And so to have the, the broad and precise vision that Eric has with the desire to execute, which is certainly what mayor's office of food policy has, it's, it's truly like I have the best job right now because it's always like, I want to go bigger. I want to go bolder, but he makes sure that what we're doing is grounded in science is grounded in, um, making sure. And I, I love how he says this in every moment that I hear him talk, food is personal. You just shared your experiences of, you know, what you remember growing up. Um, and certainly it's personal for him and he has shared and inspired so many around his food journey. But he knows that every person's journey may not resemble his, but he wants people to have the opportunity to improve their life in the same way that he did. And so that's, it's that um, providing of an opportunity, providing of something to enable people to have and make the healthy choice. He feels very, very strongly about. And I, I, I really appreciate him as a leader because of that incredibly thoughtful um, approach and, and, and the way that he listens and he hears people. He genuinely makes space, whether it is on an all agency heads call, whether he's talking to other elected officials, and most importantly, I think, to New Yorkers of all ages, shapes, backgrounds. He listens and reflects. And not just says what he, he wants to or needs to say. And that for me is really one of the, one of the most dramatic differences in my experiences in city government is, you know, and of course I came in at the height of, you know, just before it's a pandemic and to have that ability that Eric has, which is to hear and to listen from people. And, you know, it's, it's remarkable for me. And so I, I love having the, and I've, I've said this before, but not just the privilege, but the responsibility of executing on his unfortunately shared, uh, food policy vision. Um, it's a dream. I want to ask about the vision, but now since you've mentioned these, can you share a story or two of, of how that played out like a time when, um, I'm inclined to ask if, if there was a time when someone said something that a mayor wouldn't want to hear, but he still listened or any time when he like, how does it play out? Well, you know, he just the, again, also how he 
makes the time to hear all sides. And so I'll remember, um, you know, recently, certainly over the course of the last, um, you know, 10 or 11 months, uh, a particular community organization felt very passionate. This is a sort of he he said, she said story, right? Mm -hmm. And Eric took an hour out of his day to hear from the community organization, to hear from the different city agencies, to hear from the elected officials. He didn't interrupt. He really just listened. And then, you know, ultimately it was about, you know, guys, we, we, I, I really appreciate everyone is coming at this, you know, wanting to, uh, you know, ultimately serve New Yorkers better. But at the end of the day, we also have to follow some rules. Mm-hmm. And, you know, how can we agree within, you know, sort of by a certain amount of time, how we can do that. And so he comes, you know, it's very logical and sort of, you know, common sense, but he, he comes at things with listening to people, right? And then, you know, ultimately we'll get to uh, and, and manage to a conclusion and to an outcome, you know, or another time when, you know, we had a, a you know, eight o'clock call with all uh, commissioners and agency heads. And he shares these, you know, just these, these stories of his life. And it makes him relatable in a way that I think has permeated certainly the extraordinary female leaders in this city. But you know, I would say, go for, so far as to say all leaders. When we, yes, I have a title of executive director of the mayor's office of food policy, but I also have a title of a mom of two public school students. Mm-hmm. And as a wife and as a daughter and as a sister, um, and as a friend. So all of those people make me the executive director of mayor's office of food policy. But if I have a challenge with my son in school, that's part of my job. That's, you know, it, it impacts my ability to do my job. And so again, another thing that I think the ethos of Eric Adams is taking care of the whole self and through food, we're able to achieve wellness. And the ability for us to be well is our mental self, our, our physical self, and our professional self as well. And so it's, you know, everything for Eric, in my estimation, is related and holistic. And I think that that is something that he's trying to imbue on a whole of government approach. You're making me feel like, you know, I get to see him on TV mostly, and then he's talking. And it's not behind closed doors. It's not with his team. It's, you know, it's, it's more one-way communication. And now I want to talk to the guy <laughs> and get that experience. Uh, especially because it, it was such a great conversation the times before, the two conversations before. And all right. So you mentioned the vision. Yeah. And how much of the vision did he come in with? And how much of the vision did he come, did he talk to you? And, uh, was it, was it shared? Was it just, here's the deal? Uh, was it both? It's so, so there's two things. One, um, we were, uh, under mandate, but also, um, wanted to capitalize on the experience of the pandemic and how New Yorkers came to have a extraordinarily expanded view of food policy, right? If you flash back to the, you know, winter of 2020, um, you had to worry about where your next meal was going to come, going to come from because either you were told to stay home and not leave. Um, your grocery stores all of a sudden had a lot of empty shelves. Uh, your, uh, grocery store workers were all of a sudden considered first responders. 
right? And so this, you know, schools that fed our children, um, we could no longer rely on that. But within 48 hours, the schools deter, you know, turned into a sort of, you know, uh, 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 grab and go distribution point. Um, we saw certainly the role of communities, um, uh, of color largely most impacted by COVID and how people were dying in the role of our public hospital system. So people quickly, uh, you know, connected the dots of food policy isn't just access to food. It's food as an employer, food as, uh, as a system by which we actually get food. So we're able to use all of those experience, ride the wave of food policy that people now understand in a new and different way to write something called Food Forward NYC, which was our city's, is our city's first ever 10 year food policy plan. And it's a strategy, right? It is again, a, a visionary document that has five different goals, um, and, you know, shows the way in which the city can achieve those goals. By intention, it's not um, prescriptive, right? So it's not like I'm going to write this in, uh, you know, 2021, and then we're never going to develop another strategy. But the goals are sort of the container. And Eric has additional goals. We did not say at the time that we were going to create um uh, plant-based defaults in our hospital system, but it very squarely achieves, uh, you know, uh, our progress towards goal one, which is access to healthy food and some other goals at the same time. So, um, so we had a sort of structure by which certainly was the mayor's office of food policies vision. But then again, when we had this engine of Eric Adams come in, who had, you know, lived experiences, had uh, an urban agriculture plan that he had created, had championed and had a legacy of championing um, progressive food policies in his own right as borough president. It fueled uh, a, a great, a greater articulation of food policy by the leadership of this city than I believe any mayor has ever done before. So what that looks like, right, is um, is advancing our uh, public hospital system to introduce plant-based defaults into the into um, the meals that we serve. It also means an expansion of lifestyle medicine programs. And again, this is something that he championed as borough president, but is true to his word and making sure that that experience that he had, right, of not just, he rejected the notion of like, here's pills to treat your diabetes, right? And his classic um, I love it. You know, he did this very scientific Google approach of reversing diabetes mm-hmm. and wants everybody to at least have the opportunity to try eating differently. What's what's the worst that's going to happen? Right. Like there's no downside to trying to manage and potentially reverse diabetes by adopting a healthy eating habits and eating um, uh, routines. But also, again, you know, particularly in this city, when you consider uh, food insecurity, food insecurity is quite simply not knowing where your next meal is going to come from. But it doesn't just manifest in like a rumbly stomach, right? Or like the growling of your stomach. It manifests in very real stress levels in your in your body. And stress levels exacerbate diabetes and other chronic diseases. 
So again, here we go to the holistic sense of, of understanding wellness um, through food policy and lifestyle medicine. Um, Mayor Adams also, you know, clearly um, as a plant-based uh, uh, mayor, chose that path, not just because of its ability to improve his personal health, but through that journey, he became quite astute in recognizing the um, role of our food and our food system on our climate and environment. And so he, we were able to, um, you know, consider plant-based defaults, not just because of individual health, but the rationale for climate and then the, you know, the huge hill that we're facing about uh, the future of our environment and our resilient land systems mm -hmm. to ensure that we always have access to food. This was really important for him. And it wasn't like he needed to be, you know, convinced. Mm -hmm. He knew. And it was how are we going to anchor that within our Department of Environmental Protection? How are we going to anchor that certainly within our Climate um, and Environmental Justice Office and New Urban Agriculture Office? So again, the synergy of a number of different systems working together for a common good. So that was a lot about Eric. And how about yourself? So do, were you like um, fully on board? Were, were you, I mean, I, I, you probably would have told me if you had had an experience like his of losing, uh, of like changing your diet because of the, of the health reasons at, at the level he was. But were you enthusiastic about this? Were you pushing back? Were, you, were there things that, to, and then you have to, you have to face the, um, I mean, I'm thinking of when, when the Friday stuff, what was it? What's it called? Um, Plant powered Fridays. Yeah. Which I'm like, to you, I'm thinking, what's the deal? Like, what's the, what's the, and they even have pictures of plant-based and there's like a thing of milk right there. And they're like, well, federal regulations require that. I'm like, it's not, they have access to um, non-plant-based stuff there. But you had to, did you face the brunt of it or? Um, yeah, I would say that we did. But I also, you know, not, you know, I have two nutrition degrees. My bachelor's degree was in nutritional sciences, everything about food after you eat it, right? So it was a pre-med track. I very much understand science. I very much understand and can read academic research. Mm -hmm. um, and my graduate degree is in public health nutrition, and I'm a registered dietitian. So I didn't need to be convinced mm -hmm. of the health benefits of food. And once again, you know, as I as I mentioned, I had this journey of trying to infuse health into the emergency food system and, and made some progress, but I also really wanted another challenge of addressing climate and the intersections of food and climate and certainly the role of place, right? And the fact that we live in a city, you know, I've lived here um, since 2000. And when I taught at Columbia, I remember um, uh, my students we usually would get like four or five that would really gravitate to this. But, you know, it was like all the education in the world, all the education about food, about how to cook, about what to choose at the grocery store is pointless. If you can't, if you don't live in an area or you don't have enough money to be able to realize and act on those decisions, you might know what you want to buy, but if that food is not available in your neighborhood, or if you don't have the resources to do that, which is countering, you know, the, the ridiculous um, uh, assertion by some that just poor people don't know what to buy. They know what to buy. They don't have the money to buy it, right? Or but, access. Or, 
or access, right? And so when we are um, dealing with all of those realities in the city of New York, making sure that people realize the uh, extraordinary realities of structural racism and the role of, uh, of, of systems, of systems of government at all levels, perpetuating those systems is important. And again, to be able to work in an administration that is centering equity in everything it does and is centering um, the lived experiences of individuals to make sure that the policies we, we enact are, are going to make the biggest difference for particularly black and brown communities is extraordinarily important. So what is in this for me as a white woman? Having the opportunity to impart some of my experiences, but also really learn and really learn from my partners in government, from communities across the city um, about the best changes for all. You're making me think of, uh, so I teach at Stern sometimes, uh, at NYU sometimes, and uh, a Stern professor said, I'd like to invite you to speak to my class. We're doing a real world challenge of trying to get food at Hunts Point, which is in the middle of the Bronx, not in the middle of the, in the Bronx. And in the building, there's tons of fresh produce. A couple blocks away, there's no access to fresh produce. How can we get the stuff that's right there, right next to it? And so it's going to be a bunch of business school students, MBA candidates, uh, trying to figure this out. And I tell them, look, I'm going to tell you the first thing I'm going to do when I get in that classroom is I'm going to ask them, how many of you have cooked from scratch in the past you know, month or week? Or, and Because I guarantee it's going to be very little. And how can you, if you eat out every day, and you get takeout down here, how do you know what to do? And this is one element. Now, that said, I mean, I want to promote food access up there, but not handed, how do I put it? When I do my workshops up in the Bronx, my goal, I, I, so I mentioned my sister works with the, the, um, the farmer's markets. Mm-hmm. So I've been up there at the farmer's markets, and they're much smaller than, say, the Union Square one near me. But people are walking right past beautiful fresh vegetables and walking into McDonald's. Now, partly that's um, culture. Oh, and I'm sure you've met Tony Hillary. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, he told me about when he first started Harlem Grown. So uh, he got this for people, the listeners, he got this space across from a school and he had the students help him build, you know, clear out all the tires and the whatever was the wreckage stuff that was there. And formed this beautiful community garden. And the kids helped build the, not flower beds, but plant beds. Mm-hmm. Do you, have you heard the story with the chard? Yeah. And he, he says, like, dig a hole, put the seeds in, put the water in. They go, where's the chard? And he goes, yeah. it has to grow. They don't know. And then after a while, it grows. And he gives the chard to the kids. And the next day, they come in and he says, how is the chard? Our moms threw it out. At least a couple generations have just not seen... What to, how to how to prepare? Yeah. yeah, and so to me, I want to work at a, a, on multiple sides, but certainly the supply. I want more farmers markets up there, and the demand. If we put farmers markets up there and people walk past them, that doesn't work either. Mm-hmm. And to me, it's very like, um, how do I put it? I can be very frugal with my spending on food, and yet I get really great stuff. You know, it took me a while to learn how to buy in season how to eat fresh, and how to spend less money on fresh food. And I want to impart that. Yeah, It kills me that, I mean, you said, what is this, what's in this for me as a white woman? 
the number of times when I talk about food access and I get told, you don't know what you're talking about. You're, you know, you don't know what it's like for a single mom in a food desert with three kids and three jobs. And well, I'm not a single mom in a food desert with three kids and three jobs. My mom was a single mom after the divorce and three kids and latchkey. But um, it kills me when people say they... <laughs> you saw the gesture of just this, this frustration. Yeah. It's like, I go up there and I go to a community garden, like Drew Gardens. And I was like, I'm so glad that no one told them that they can't do this because they can do it. Yeah. You know, and the patronizing and the condescension is really uh, in all directions. Yeah. It kills me and it keeps people from actually getting the farmers markets up there and actually helping people cook with from raw, from scratch. Yeah. And I will tell you, I think there's also um, – there's the competing variable, which we all have the same amount of, um, but how we use it is extraordinarily um, varying, which is time, mm-hmm. right? And so I remember, uh, well, I mean, anytime. It could be, you know, what I go home and prepare for my kids tonight. Do I do, I do a meal planning at the beginning of the week? Um, or do we take out the, you know, spaghetti sauce and all, all of that? But it's, it's, it's time. And so cooking doesn't have to take time. But when you are, you've got those precious 20 minutes of seeing your kids before you go out to another job, figuring out like, what do I do with the shard? All of it is something that just takes a moment, right? Takes a moment to understand how do I do this? How do I make sure that that my kids are going to eat it? I've certainly got one kid that will eat everything. And I've got a daughter who we still are dealing with the like noodles all the time situation because she just won't eat a green vegetable right now. So, and that doesn't feel good, but I, I think it's just important again. And, and to bring Eric back into this for a minute, though, you know, he would say, you know, we have to, it's all about education, but not, but, but experiential education. Like those kids who planted that shard and probably over the course of the weeks that they saw it starting to, you know, poke up from the ground, they're always going to remember that. Right. And so giving kids the experience where we aren't just saying like, you know, don't eat that ice cream or don't do this or that. But what can you do? What are the things that we want we, you should do? And why don't you eat this? Because it's it's tasty and it's enjoyable, but not at the sacrifice of something else. Right. And so it's it's always about giving kids these opportunities for them to connect the food that's grown to uh, to what they're cooking at home or what they're seeing or not seeing in the grocery store so that the story of food becomes about reading, becomes about math and about science. And then as we grow older to marketing and to, uh, you know, justice, I think food is a vehicle to explore all of these incredibly important moments. And that's what we're trying to do with our school system is making that thread of food, something that begins in your, in your school setting as early as, you know, pre, pre-K and three for all and, and the early childhood years through the time when you ultimately graduate. It's not just something that you get for, you know, five minutes out in a health class, but it is something that is woven throughout your experience and your tenure in public schools. So that what you're, you're learning about those plant-based meals that you're getting in your cafeteria and why and where they're grown. And maybe a farmer comes in or you go to that farmer's field to be able to see, um, again, the connection and the, 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 the circularity of food 
in our lives. Yeah, when I went to in Philadelphia Central High School, which is like there are Stuyvesant, but scaled down to mm-hmm. Philadelphia scale. And what so that was like the, the magnet school of the city. I wouldn't call food what they served in the cafeteria there. It was really nasty. And then, um, I mean, which is to say it was just low quality stuff that was kind of boiled and, and I, oh yes. Oh my God. One of my friends once saw a can that was, uh, you know, in the trash that, and it said a grade D edible. That's what was served to us. And then there are these pictures online. I'm sure you've seen of like pictures of food given to kids in France and Japan in the U S. And it's what you're talking about is, is what are we teaching kids if we're giving them like boiled grade D meat as how, where are we, where's New York on those scale of reaching its potential compared to say France or Japan or places that really. Yeah. Well, you know, our, um, I all, I love looking to other cities, countries and, and, you know, across in the global South, as well as, um, you know, in, in, uh, in Rome and Paris for sure. Mm-hmm. Um, the relationship that we have with food is also very different in, in each of those geographies. Um, I was just actually at, um, I was in Rio to accept a war, an award for this city, um, issued by the, it's called the Milan Urban Food Policy Pact. And we spend a lot of, um, which is, you know, more than 200 cities now who, you know, submit their best practices and what they're doing in food. And, um, we won for our work in, uh, good food purchasing, um, in New York City. But I will say that, like, when you sit back and, you know, somebody, we we're sitting at this very table here a few weeks before with the, um, with Catalonians. Mm-hmm. And again, we, we were chuckling about the experience of school food and how, in Catalonia or in many other places, um, food is just treated with a great deal of dignity and appreciation. That doesn't, you can't just like our kids, our future generations aren't going to, maybe in like, you know, 200 years, we could get to that point if we really did a lot of things differently. But I think, and I'm really, I'm really proud of what our public school system, the largest public school system in the U.S. here in New York City is doing which is recognizing that we can, you know, we can use the food that we procure to make even better recipes. We have a great deal of um, energy right now around a chef's council that's working across um, many different cultures to create recipes that are provided, kids provide feedback into those recipes, right? And so it's not just like, I like it, I don't like it. What is it that you like and don't like? What could make the taste even better or what taste don't you like? So developing that vocabulary and that sense of, you know, of, of, um, of what's salty, what's sweet, et cetera. And then ultimately, um, the staff get trained to prepare those meals. I think the training aspect of this is not dissimilar to the conversation about why some parents are going to McDonald's or not. There has to be that training component also about um, how does the school food service um, team prepare great food? But then you have the question of like, all right, I want to prepare this, but I don't have a the stove to do this, right? So it's not just about the quality ingredients, which it is, and we are um, we have some really stellar ingredients in the city system, especially from New York State, um, and we've got some you know uh, federal rules that we do have to follow, including providing milk, um, dairy milk. 
But I also think, you know, we're doing a great deal of inventorying around the capacity of kitchens and the need to invest in a better stove, a better uh, design, an air conditioner for good grief, like to be able uh, over the warmer summer and spring months to create a good environment for cooks to actually cook food, right? All of this is connected to the ingredients, to the training, to the um, the equipment that school food service need. And then perhaps the hardest is actually getting kids who, particularly at a young age, need a good 15 to 20 different exposures of a certain type of food before they can actually say, yeah, I like this or I don't like this. Um, and so all of these things are, are seemingly the stack, you know, the deck, as they say, could be stacked against us. But we've got an incredible, you know, I think it's you know close to 9,000 school food service workers in the city of New York who have their sleeves rolled up. And Mayor Adams and Chancellor Banks, I was like, had a pep call, of, you know, like, sort of like, let's do this, guys. We're all here together. You guys are feeding our kids. And if that is not one of the most important jobs in the city, I don't know what is. Yeah, I, I don't remember. I mean, I'm digging back far memories, but I don't remember it being a, a lot of dignity in the cafeteria workers then. No. And now speaking of New York State food, I was going to say this till later, and I don't want to put you on the spot, <laughs> but my CSA. Now, I think that I have here some apple from New York, not far from here. Yeah. And you don't have to have it if you don't want. But is this not an insanely delicious apple? I mean, there's stuff in the stores and there's stuff in the farmer's market, but this is direct to the consumer. Mm-hmm. I mean, to, and I think it's like, I bite into it. I'm like, how can candy exist in the world? Why? Is this like a better than average apple? This is. I've had a lot of apples this season, but this is, what is the variety I have to ask? I don't know. Cause... I've been really partial to McCoon and Honeycrisp this season, but I'm not sure if this is that. What happened, everyone has to volunteer a certain number of shifts. Mm-hmm. And happened to volunteer on the last day, and someone didn't pick up their apples. So, and pears. I was going to bring a pear, but I know you well enough to give you a pear. (laughs) (laughs) But it's still there if you want. And I was reading a story in the New Yorker about a guy in Governor's Island who's um, planting stuff that grew around here, Mm -hmm. and he was talking about how supermarket apples still aren't as good as. uh, I mean, he, he was like. Even Honeycrisp is like, that's, I guess, a couple of years ago that came out. It was like really popular. And he was like, oh, that's nothing compared to the stuff that really grew around here. Yeah. And then I bit into this one of these and I was like, oh, my God. I think the stuff in the stores is often shipped often from Fuji or Fiji or like around the world or Australia or Chile. So that's bred for to look nice, to look uniform, to withstand the shipping. Then there's the stuff in the farmer's market, which is still... They want it to look nice. But this, when it's a CSA, so for people who don't know, I mean, every week I go to a community, uh, a drop-off point where they drop off like a couple hundred people's worth of stuff and I get mine. And it ends up being really cheap because there's no advertising and there's no, and the farmers don't, it takes away all the risk on their part because they get paid up front. And I thought about what their motivation is. They don't care if it looks good. What I care about when I eat it, and what, what they want I think, is someone who buys again without thinking twice. And so what makes me want to buy is it tastes good and there's a lot of it. That's what I want. And so I think that's what they get is really good tasting stuff in plentiful supply. And 
they don't care. So I don't know what, what – I guess I can ask them what kind of – if you want me to find out what, what kind it is, I'll find out. Because I write them sometimes because they're cherry tomatoes. Yeah. I love my mom's cherry tomatoes, but theirs are off the charts. Yeah. And the arugula and the kohlrabi and it's just – and I didn't eat this stuff before. I just bought the CSA and I was like, I'm not going to let anything go to waste. And this is – I wish I'd had this as a kid was – you got to figure it out. And in the winter, when I'm not getting packaged stuff, I go to the farmer's market and I got beets and radishes and turnips and the greens, you know, by February, March, there aren't any greens left. Yeah. yeah. And yet people lived here for 10,000 years. And I doubt that they were dying from like bland food. What something else that I find... Um really remarkable about a lot of the farmers in our area and again places like grow nyc and just food and others is um growing i remember i visited my csa back when um i was living in sunset park at the time and i'm gonna blank on the farm name but it was um uh growing a lot of herbs in particular and tomatoes particularly for the population that you know lived in in Sunset Park, which is largely a lot of Mexican, um, a lot of South American, and so you know these sort of also new farmer development programs. Um, and I'm sure our Office of Urban Ag is going to be um, lifting up a lot of this kind of work. But you know a lot of people come to this country with a long history and a deeper connection to food systems and growing patterns than many, certainly New Yorkers right now, and how we can find ways to be able to make sure that our food supply has products that are familiar um, and also those people um, can can do what they love doing, which is farm. And this is something that, of course, is very challenging with the cost of land and land availability. But I just always remember my trip to that farm in particular. It was very muddy, Mm -hmm. but the histories and the experiences and the salsas that we had um, after that that farm visit. You must have, I mean, all right. I think being in politics in New York City means you got to feel a lot of um, media press and and challenges. Okay, yes, but this must be one of the best jobs in the world. I love it. I mean, the, the variety of yeah. I mean, there's no every. I mean, to tell you, there is no day that is exact, exactly like the last. And when I think about Again, like, you know, with that that platform, Food Forward, you know, we want to do, you know, we, we always want to be thinking about, you know, the, uh, our, our food access and food prices. But we also want to do a lot more with Hunts Point, with the food that's coming into our city. We want to get more regional food in. We want to figure out ways to incentivize that. We want to figure out, you know, the um, real conundrum here with food businesses is they're not you know, they don't make a ton of money, right? They're not like our economic development corporation is like wants to support food, but food businesses really are kind of like a small business. So just trying to, and our restaurant sector, all of this is food policy. So we've just got this, you know, incredible opportunity to be able to establish food policies and embed them in these agencies that have a great deal of staff supports to be able to execute on that. So I, you know, it's, um, it's, it's such a, 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 um, extraordinary time. And the thing that keeps me up at night is how many things we want to achieve. Mm -hmm. 
it's not, it's not even the how it's like, how do we honestly, sometimes we have to start saying no Mm -hmm. so that we can really just manage what we have on our plates and, and execute really well. Um, while continuing this, the process of education, education for, and I'm not talking about like what, what foods, you know, um, are available and whatnot, but the education on food policy, the education about, um, what's coming out of the White House conference on food, hunger, and health, right? That we just had. What are some real ways that we can see some of our ideas get executed in, you know, crazy Washington land? And that's, that's, I think also the really fun and, and sort of, um, uh, challenge, uh, and how do we leverage the extraordinary voice and leader that Mayor Adams is to help advance a lot of that work? Fun challenge sounds like euphemism. <laughs> Crazy. Why? So I'm going to add something else to the plate that when, when we met, it was at that event on 8th Street. Yeah. And I said to you, I live around the corner. And I go into Washington Square Park every day and pick up litter. And one time I was walking past and I was behind these three women speaking French, French, I guess, tourists. And we were, there was a huge pile of garbage. Uh, this was, happened to be in the northwest corner where there's a lot of drugs. Uh, but nonetheless, mostly food, or I would say doof waste. And I remember enough French from when I lived there that it, they said, Mais c'est de glace, which is to say, that's disgusting. This is my backyard. This is the city's backyard, one of the city's many backyards. And you're talking about leadership and culture in the sense of different cultures, but also it seems to me that in the past, in, in my life, in my time in New York City, so I moved here in the 80s, the everyone, I mean, okay, here, here's a couple of images that come to mind. Uh, someone riding the city bike with a coffee cup in hand. It's a disposable coffee cup. They're all disposable coffee cups, single use. Uh, I can't imagine they're enjoying the coffee while riding a bike. And another is every place around Washington Square Park sells food or doof and mostly in takeout stuff that people bring into the park. They do not have trash cans themselves because they know what happens if they get a trash can. It's going to fill up like crazy. So all that trash goes into the park. Now, some would say that's a sanitation issue. No sanitation in the world system in the world could keep up with the amount of the increase, and you can say, well, there's this huge supply of fracking, which pl- makes the plastic really cheap and so forth. Still, there's this culture of disposability of, I mean, the way I put it is that with regard to the environment, how we treat each other when that treatment is, is mediated through the environment is we've abandoned, leave it better than you found it. We've abandoned, abandoned, live and that live, and we've abandoned, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. And food is at the center of all of it. It's not, it's one of the centers. Cause when people talk to me, I, I walk people through this, this Bodic method of this, where people take on commitments to, to do something on their, based on their environmental values. And a lot of them p- say, I'm going to pick up litter. Not a lot, some. Invariably, they come back and they say, I had no idea how much there was. I, where I walk past every day is way more than I thought. And, I've seen a few initiatives that the city has done where it talks about less waste or, or uh, styrofoam or, or mm-hmm. plastic bags. And the industry always pushes back with this. Um, you talked about science, not science-based yeah. defense of their industry. But loud. Loud and always specious, self-serving, fatuous. And when it gets passed, not always, but the times it gets passed, it turns out it's all just fluff. 
I mean, some company that's polluting, maybe they don't get to sell as many plastic bags as they did before. But the city is cleaner for it. Would be, except we can't, we can't keep up with it. This is perhaps you hear some passion in my voice of something I would like to work on. Yeah. And, but I, I don't see anyone talking about it about how much our city is covered in, you know, single-use disposable bottles, single-use disposable packaging, you know, fresh dressed bags, and 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 none of it food. It's almost, I mean, it's basically doof. And I mean, on the way down here, I passed by. There's a pizza place on. Father Duffy Square, off of 6th Avenue. It does have a trash can across the street from it. I think it's its own. And it's filled with, it's filled with pizza boxes from across the sidewalk. Yeah, yeah. Like how this is not necessary and, and, and it's not improving anyone's life and it's definitely hurting people. I mean, you talked about climate. So there's a the manufacturer of all this stuff. But there's also the, the, the resources that have to be taken out of the ground and that's displacing people and wildlife from the land and um, it's climate plus a whole lot more. So I just said a whole lot. And I'm, I'm, uh, there's a few things swirling in my mind. You know, one is I'm immediately taken back to one of my graduate school classes with the um, uh, extraordinary maven um, Joan Gassau. Mm-hmm. Class was called Nutritional Ecology. And this, as I mentioned, my undergrad was everything about food after you eat it not by design, but by chance, everything about my graduate program was everything about food before you eat it. And so I'm thinking about what you just said in relationship to also like a a typical grocery store, not a bodega, but a typical, like let's say Philadelphia grocery store or some of the larger grocery stores we have here. Pick a product, right? Like pick a product, let's say it is a box of pasta, Mm -hmm. You don't just have one brand of pasta. You've got eight different brands of pasta, right? And so you've got then, like, let's imagine people buy that and people use it. It's, it's just the, the sheer, the sheer, um, number of SKUs that we have in our food system contributes to all of that, right? And so there's no action that I have related to that, but more of an awareness. And I think also going back to, the more we are cooking our food, ideally, the less waste that we are creating, or at least we're mindful of that. Um, you know, the points that you raise also around, um, it's not, you know, the, the cycle of food, you know, food is involved in this conversation, not just from a food waste organics piece, which of course the city has, you know, really significant plans to be able to tackle and grapple with that in ways um, that we've never done before. But also, again, I'll point to a theme here of whether it is environmental protection, the many offices of um, climate and resilience. We have a new um, uh, plan NYC coming out in April to be bold and visionary from a climate perspective and sustainability perspective. And we have a interagency cabinet, the climate cabinet that is meeting for six months, we'll have met for six months by the time that plan comes out. Because I'm, as again, like I'm not just uh, here in my, uh, as executive director, but I'm a New Yorker. I see it. I live in the city as well. And I see what you're talking about. And the mayor sees it. And we are figuring out within the, from a governance perspective, the things that levers that we can pull to try and get all of that um, uh, more contained 
us, let's let's say. Yeah, to me, it's, I mean, containing it after it stopped. I mean, my model for this is that is when in 2000 and the city banned cigarettes in the workplace yeah. and all the restaurants and bars said, they'll just take the train across the river to New Jersey and we're going to lose business. Yeah. And two and a half years later, New Jersey had to ban cigarettes because people were coming into the city because they wanted, if when you when there's no access to fresh air in that case, you don't know what fresh how how fantastic fresh air is compared to cigarette smoke. Yeah. And I know that if we say let's go crazy, if we say no single use packaging for any food whatsoever, everyone just said what? That's impossible. And yet it's been three years since I've emptied my garbage at home, and I'm pretty healthy. And I know what will happen is that. A couple of years later, New Jersey is going to have to ban it too because people are going to be like, oh, these streets are filthy and New York's are clean. Mm-hmm. And people could say, oh, the streets were really messy in, in the 70s. But it wasn't plastic. Yeah. It, it wasn't toxic. It wasn't – it in some way could break down Yeah. in under 1,000 years or 500 years. I, oh, all right. So I went to the, the Whole Foods in Union Square and I looked at um, at least 100 people coming through the checkout. And I just looked in – you know, there's not a, a – scientific, double-blind, controlled experiment. I'm just looking at what, what I see. And every single item in every single checkout was packaged. The produce had stickers, but I mean, I, I, there are plenty of people who put who don't who bring their own bags. But in this, of the ones that I saw, they, none of them did. They, all the produce was put in new bags. Yeah. And so I thought, all right, if everyone has one thing, one piece of plastic per meal, and there's 8 billion people on the planet, well, let's say not everyone eats like us. So let's say half of that. So 4 billion people, three meals a day, 365 days a year for a thousand years. But let's say it breaks down to 500. So I, 4 billion times 365 times three, 2.2 quadrillion. That would be if there was if one piece of plastic per meal. But it's many more than that. Yeah. Yeah. It, that's like per item in yeah. the meal. And this is only one source of plastic. And And I think, you know, there are some... And I, I, I can't wait to give you, you know, more examples like this. But, you know, it wasn't too awful long ago that New York City schools were using like styrofoam or plastic mm-hmm. plates. It's entirely compostable at this point. A, you know, fiber, um, you know, circular plate that also now every other large city is using, thanks in large part to NRDC supporting that work. But like, that's, a big something. Is know? it really compostable? To, oh, yes. And we have the facilities to compost it? Yes, it is definitely compostable. I don't know if that is, I don't, it's, I don't know the um, ultimate location of where it's occurring, mm-hmm. but in the specs for the product, it is 100% compostable. I will also say, you know, they're also exploring other packaging, like around the sandwiches to something sort of like what Pret does, you know, where you have like, um, um, it's not plastic, it's a, like, I don't know, um, wood and you know paper sort of thing that goes into the sandwich to not have a clamshell, right? They're really exploring the types of uh, materials that we're using for our food, again, within the space of what can government do to make this better. Certainly, we report out on things like, you know, plastic bottle, uh, water bottle consumption and, and whatnot. But I'm sure there's a lot farther, you know, uh, that that we need to go. And um, again, I think that's an area. I think Barcelona is really leading on on some of this work. But where we need the inspiration 
and models from outside to be able to, to figure out here. Some The Ellen MacArthur Foundation, again, just before the pandemic, we had started to work um, on, you know, it's become sort of the buzzword, but the circular economy, particularly thinking about food and these systems of uh, production to uh, to consumption of and, and disposing of food. But I think you're exactly, you know, you're exactly right. And, you know, we see the, the ways in which packaging of, of items might be under the guise of safety, might be under the guise of something else. But at the end of the day, the sort of like real trade-offs of like, this is a lot that we're, that we're, we're, growing away that doesn't go anywhere and how might we do this in a smarter way that has um that has actual benefit and not just we're not just ending life but creating something the we have this culture of i don't know abdication of just like not trying and i think i mean my one of my main methods is i mean the spodic method is is Mindset shift followed by continual transformation, continual improvement, continual transformation. That we always overestimate what we can do in a day and underestimate what we can do in a year. And a lot of people think, well, I mean, so I'm not going to argue with people who say if a lot of people do a little, it adds up. But if if people keep doing, if people keep going, it's it's not that long after if they have the mindset shift first, yeah. which most people in this country don't seem to have. It's more of like, oh, I can't, they're throwing up their hands. But when people do want to, and then they do one thing, then the next, and the next, it's not long before they're doing really big things. And now that's a leadership thing. I don't think that, the, you talked about levers earlier, and I don't think that a, a, the city can manage in certain ways by, by saying these are the rules. But if people don't, if people don't like the rules, they'll, they'll just go around them somehow. But that's one of the big things about Eric is that he is not faking his dietary transformation. No. And uh, so he's got a, a – that's a role model right there. And if – like in contrast with previous mayors who said let's have small – let's cap the size of soft drinks. And he wasn't quite as um, authentic, at least in this regard, as Eric. Yeah. Uh, and this is one of the things that I try to bring in is – to live it, to live, to be able to say with um, lived experience and and pa- just passion for what you do, you know that that when whether it was at the White House conference, whether it was at Gracie Mansion talking to all of the summer youth employment students, it's we have such an extraordinary opportunity. He mayor just spoke at the C forty meeting um, uh, remotely, but that was in Argentina and the number of people who are genuinely personally as their their self motivated and inspired by him and then take that passion into their professional stature to figure out what to do with it right like how can we begin to think about plant-based defaults in our hospital system as as one example right there's there's um something about the personal story and the personal narrative that really does inspire people to change. And that I think is, um, is one of the reasons why, uh, you know, from food policy's perspective, we are really on such a great trajectory right now is because he is a very, uh, he feels the conviction to share that story so well. 
So I won't put you on the spot, but after we hang up or after we stop recording, <laughs> I'll suggest my services in some way because I think that uh, I have a deep passion. I love the city. And people are like, why don't you move out of the city? I'm like, this is where the problems are too. And I, like, I, I want to fix problems. I don't want to run away from them. And what people don't get is on the other side of, of if you see it as a challenge or a burden to shift from getting takeout all the time or to learning to cook. Cooking doesn't take more time or money. Not knowing how to cook does. If you don't know how to, then it can be very difficult. If you know how to, I, I'm speaking out of inexperience not being a father, but I can't think of how I'd want to spend time with my child more than cooking together. And what? Here, here's a personal question. What age should a kid be able to handle a sharp knife in the kitchen? Um. Well, I will tell you what I have done with my uh, with my kids, and they're very different kids. But I agree with you, and I I unwind by cooking, and so my son sees me cooking, and of course wants to do it. And we he started we got him um, these sort of you know gloves that you for 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 the holidays a few years ago. It was a, a sort of a chef's knife with these gloves that you put on so you don't cut yourself. So that must have been when he was eight. Mm-hmm. But there's a there's a sense of you know, satisfaction too of like being able to, you know, cutting your own apple or yeah. something like that. Um, but that is very much a, a every child and their yeah. parent decision. <laughs> um, but I, I, I think understanding how to do those things, um, is, is part of, uh, part of, a, you know, what kids need to learn and cleaning up their messes <laughs> <laughs> and cleaning up their messes. But yes. You mean kids aren't all like I was, how mm. I always clean up all messes I made? No, but the vo- I'm sure you maybe ha- still hear a parent voice in your ear of like, close that, you know, close that door, all of these things that um, I still hear. But I, um, I, I do think it is important from as early as age and age as possible to have exposures mm-hmm. to not just, you know, fruits and vegetables, but different cultural cuisine, you know, different spices, different, all of these things. And kids can find enjoyment in that. Um, and learn about different places too. Um, but I, um, I, I, I wish that for all of our city's kids, because I love nothing more than, you know, than particularly seeing kids experience in nature, um, uh, the experience of, of seeing all different kinds of food grow. Yeah. Speaking of nature, I, I mean, this city could use more nature and our most intimate contact with nature is, is eating it. I mean, it, it literally becomes us. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, now we're, I think we're over the to schedule time, uh, so we can wrap up. Anything, anything, any message to the listeners before wrapping up? Um, stay intrigued. I think food policy is, um, is cutting edge right now, really. And it is not, um, it's not yesterday's food policy. Um, it's really, uh, an opportunity to address behavior to address health, to address climate and governance in ways that we've never considered before. Kate McKenzie, thank you very much. Of course. Thank you. How many people are bringing a message of joy from what everyone calls saving the environment, but I call the future? Step by step, this podcast is creating a culture of joy, community, and connection around sharing and acting on our environmental values. Again, there's no profit in buying and wasting less, but we'll all love our lives and relationships more when we do. I can use your support. Please donate at joshuaspodick.com slash donate. Again, 
That's joshuaspodek.com slash donate.